There's no Old Testament reading this morning because our sermon this morning has an Old Testament and New Testament uh, passage. The New Testament scholar C.H. Dodd wrote in 1940, the gospel is firmly rooted in a story of that which once happened. The story's familiar, but we should observe that the situation into which Jesus Christ came was genuinely typical. The forces with which he came into contact were such as are permanent factors in history. Government, institutional religion, nationalism, and social unrest. And he wrote that in 1940. I know I said last week that we would unpack the benediction at the end of the book of Romans in chapter 16, but this morning we're not going to do that. Now, I'm not the most culturally relevant preacher in the world. I don't think it's fitting to every time there is sort of some cultural issue going on because there are always cultural issues going on to commandeer the pulpit and sort of address everything going on in our society. We would really never, you know, sort of move through books of the Bible. And, but I think it's appropriate this morning because we're just a couple days away from probably the most controversial presidential election in all of our lifetime. And I felt I had to at least address this cultural moment. Now, there are three categories of people here today, likely. Those who don't want to be talked out of voting for Trump, those who don't want to be talked out of voting for Biden, and I'm talking about those who are watching from home also, and those who feel uneasy about supporting either candidate. Whichever camp you fall into this morning, I hope you'll welcome some spiritual perspective. And so my purpose this morning is not to persuade you to vote for one candidate over the other or to endorse a particular candidate. The last thing you need from me is more partisan polarization. What I hope to do this morning is to help us to think Christianly in the arena of politics as we come up on the presidential election in just a couple days. Ed Stetzer in his book, Christians in the Age of Outrage, says, this issue of polarization has recently jumped into hyperdrive, particularly along partisan lines. A 2017 Pew Research study said tribalism has increased significantly in the United States since 1994. Sadly, he goes on, Christians of varying religious traditions, ethnicities, and socioeconomic backgrounds have often followed their non-Christian friends deep into these divisions. Thus, even as the country slowly entrenches itself along political, cultural, and economic lines, professing Christians are often on the front lines of the divisions. What he's essentially saying is that Christians like us who have the life-altering power of the gospel, which is the only hope in this world, are just as likely to be divisive in our workplaces, in, on Facebook, or Twitter, 
at school, or in our neighborhoods, which means the church is not leading the way on this issue. Jesus' statement that we're to be the light of the world presupposes that we ought to have the alternative to the rhetoric of darkness that we see all around us on our jobs and in our neighborhoods, on our school campuses. We ought to be the light in the darkness. What I want to do this morning is share a couple case studies, one from the New Testament and one from the Old Testament. And the first case study is from 1 Samuel chapter 8. I'm going to read a couple verses as an intro before we have the text up on the screen. 1 Samuel 8 and 1, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways and turned aside after gain. They took bribes and they perverted justice. 1 Samuel 8, 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So just a little background. For centuries after entering the promised land, ancient Israel had no king. That's what the book of Judges is all about. It is about ancient Israel after coming out of the wilderness and into the land of Canaan. They are governed by judges. The judges were men chosen by God to rescue the people from their enemies. And you know some of the judges, right? Like Samson and Deborah. God chose them to rescue the people from their enemies and to establish justice and the practice of the law. But over time, they desired to be ruled like the heathen nations. They saw the nations around them, and they envied the way the heathen nations governed themselves. They desired to be ruled by a king, and up to this point, they had no king. And this represents a pivotal moment in the biblical storyline because it signals a shift when the people of God no longer want to trust in God, but trust in men. It's a pivotal moment. And God responds with a statement to Samuel that by desiring a human king, they were, in essence, rejecting God as their king. Now, N.T. Wright has a really good little book called How God Became King, and it is a fascinating Fantastic little book about what the Messiahship of Jesus is, was all about in restoring the kingship of God whom the people had rejected centuries earlier. But the warning given by God to Samuel is give the people what they want, but give them this warning. The king that will rule over them will give them far more than they've bargained for. He'll use power and resources to his own advantage. 
He'll risk the lives of the young men in wars and enslave the population, and he'll pilfer the public treasury. And generally speaking, down through the ages, that is exactly what rulers tend to do and have done down through the centuries. There is a final warning, and it is a consequence at the end of this section that God says that the result of them trusting in a human ruler more than me, God says, will be that when they cry out for relief from the ruler they've put in power, I will not hear them. Those are chilling and tragic words to the prophet Samuel, to the people of God, all of those centuries ago. And we know what happened from Scripture, from our Bibles. We know that King Saul, Israel's very first monarch, did just that. He did the very things God warned that he would do. And Saul turned out to be wicked and self-serving, greedy and paranoid. And most of all, and this was the most important thing, he didn't serve the Lord. Now Saul is kind of an archetype for most of Israel and Judah's rulers. They were self-seeking, they were self-serving, mostly, and led the people away from God. There were some exceptions, right? There was David, and there was Solomon, and there was Hezekiah and King Josiah, but for the vast majority of the rulers, including the righteous ones, they all had these deep moral failings that had consequences for the whole nation. And when we talk about politics, we often say, well, look, we're all sinners, so it's really just a matter of a ruler or a leader. I mean, we're all, we all have moral flaws. It's just a matter of degrees. But the lesson from 1 Samuel as a case study for us, as we are about to vote, maybe some of you have already voted, but the lesson for us is the danger in trusting in political leaders. It has nothing to do with whether or not it's rulers themselves or the fact that there are rulers over nations are wrong or somehow it's wrong to vote. That's not the point. There's nothing wrong with voting in the political process, but it's the degree to which our heart and we allow our hearts to trust in rulers or princes or kings or prime ministers or presidents for that matter. The Bible is deeply suspicious of rulers, period. The Bible's disposition towards people in power is just one of suspicion. And the warning, of course, is that suspicion beckons us that if we're not careful, we can betray our faith by placing too much hope in them, just like the Hebrews. What's the takeaway? Well, don't trust in man more than God. Don't make the mistake of believing that if we just had the right people in power, everything would be just fine. The story of Israel's monarchs is a sordid tale of treachery and idolatry and corruption because rulers rarely did what they were expected to do. It's sort of like the Lord of the Rings. Whether you've read the book or seen the movie, everyone who possessed the ring of power is corrupted by it. I have to believe that it's 
Tolkien's commentary on power, or at least worldly power. Because everyone, going back to, so it's, you know, it's Bilbo, and before Bilbo it was Gollum, and going back all the way to the very first people, men that got their hands on the ring of power, they were corrupted by it. And even Frodo, who is sort of innocent and guileless, and has determined to take the ring of power to Mount Doom to be destroyed, wrestles deeply with the temptation to use it for his own advantage over other people. It's an allegory about the corrupting influence of power on otherwise good men. And of course, baked into the story, the trajectory is that there is only one who will rule justly and righteously. But in summary, essentially to surmise this case study, it's all earthly rulers will disappoint. The people want a king, but God warns, you will be disappointed. It's, it's good, you know, to, um, to have realistic expectations about the things of this world, including presidential elections. The second case study is from the New Testament, and it's from Mark chapter 12. Verse 13, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. If you don't know the background of this story, in about AD 6, about 30 years earlier, the Romans imposed a census tax on the Jewish people, and it wasn't received well. Go figure, right? A new tax was not received well by the people. And by 17 AD, a revolt led by a man named Judas the Galilean, a sort of theocratic nationalist, created a movement that believed that since God alone was the only true leader of Israel, it was wrong, sinful if you will, to pay taxes to Rome. And on the other side, you had Jewish leadership like Herod and his camp who were in bed with Caesar and Rome. And so, of course, the people in that camp thought it was perfectly fine to pay taxes to Caesar and Rome because it supported and upheld their own power dynamic. And growing out of these two movements, you had essentially two polarized factions in ancient Israel during the time of Jesus. Two polarized factions. The Pharisees who said no taxes, that's idolatry, 
and the Herodians, Herod's squad, saying, yes, pay taxes, it's perfectly fine. And these two camps grew in influence so that by the time Jesus comes on the scene, he is living in a deeply polarized, politically partisan society. It was a tinderbox, if you will. And here in Mark 12, representatives from both groups approach Jesus with this question over taxes. Is it lawful, they said, to pay taxes to Caesar? Should we pay them or not? And what they're really asking Jesus is, tell us where you are politically. Tell us what side you're on, Jesus. Now that's an important an instructive thing for us at this very moment when we think about how the scripture describes their question as a way to entrap him. And clearly they had some nefarious intentions, but essentially what they're asking is, Jesus, we want to know who you're voting for. <laughs> we want to know what political party you're registered with. And I just want to say as like a statement of fact and truth that you should know and think about and write down that the gospel of Jesus critiques all political philosophies. Jesus critiques all political movements. Should we pay them or not? They're trying to lock Jesus down on one side or another. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? The hot button issue of the day, and there are a lot of hot button issues of our day right now. Now there were probably more hot button issues of Jesus' day than this, but this is the one that scripture gives us because it revealed a lot. And political issues are like that today. In fact, there are probably many of us that have boiled down our entire political allegiance to one issue or two. It's just something we do. And Jesus responds and he says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Now a denarius was a coin with Caesar's inscription. The front of the denarius shows a profiled bust of Tiberius crowned with the laurels of victory. And even a modern viewer would immediately recognize the person depicted on the coin as a Roman emperor. All these years later, if someone showed you one of these coins, you would see, well, that, you would say, well, that's got to be a Roman emperor. And circumscribed around Tiberius was an abbreviation in Latin, Tiberius Caesar, Divi August, Philly Augustus, which means Tiberius Caesar, worshipful son of the god Augustus. And by asking for the coin, there's a lot that's revealed. Jesus reveals that, well, he doesn't have one of the coins. He is not in possession of one of these coins. And so when they ask if it's okay to pay taxes, he understands what they're getting at. And he says, give me the coin. And when they give him the coin, he says, whose likeness and inscription is on this coin? Now, what's interesting is, in the past few years, I've, I've really dived down deep into the humanity of Jesus, because like good 
Bible-believing Christians, we believe Jesus is divine, and that is something we harp on a lot, and rightly so. One of the things we don't sort of unpack too much is the fact that Jesus was also human. He wasn't pretending to be a human. He was really a human being while he was in the flesh with limited knowledge. And I like to say, and that makes some people uncomfortable, what do you mean Jesus didn't know everything? I say Jesus knew everything he needed to know. There were some things in the flesh, having laid aside at least all the omnis, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, and his omniscience, at least in the flesh, there were some things Jesus didn't know, and he clearly didn't know who was on the coin. You'd think a prophet like Jesus would be so well-informed on the issue and have a strong opinion about it, right? You would think maybe Jesus, being who he was, was sort of, you know, had been briefed on these issues, right? And he, you know, had sort of, you know, deep, you know, intellectual explanation and reasoning for each issue, but he doesn't know who's on the coin, and he asks who's on the coin, and what that reveals, I think, his somewhat cool response is that Jesus is saying, well, what, what, is, this you're, what is this you're going on about? Give me the coin. Who, who's on the coin? And it reveals that Jesus is just not as passionate about this issue as they are. I mean, he might as well have said, you know, I'm, I'm not as exercised over this issue as you are, but, you know, who, who, who's on the coin? Who is this? Right? We'd like to think that Jesus is as worked up about every political issue as we are. And I think there's a lesson in that for us. Jesus is asked to weigh in on one of the most hot-button issue, political issues of his day, and he's essentially aloof. There's a healthy sense of distance Jesus has between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. And what that says to me is that we ought to have a healthy sense of distance from the hot-button political issues of our time. Not that we shouldn't have opinions, so don't hear what I'm not saying, that we shouldn't care. That is not what I'm saying. I am not saying we should not care about political issues or we should you know, uh, have no interest in what is going on in our world politically. What I am saying is like Jesus, we ought to have a healthy amount of distance from the politics of our day. We can know them, we can be informed, we can even have strong opinions, but as kingdom people, people who are concerned with eternal matters, recognizing that, you know, the political landscape changes, you know, every five or 10 years, maybe every 20 years, but it's always changing. But the one thing that is not changing is what's eternal, God's kingdom purposes, the word of God. So it's not that we shouldn't have opinions or shouldn't care about political issues, but they shouldn't control us. In other words, Christians should not be owned by politics. It's a little slide here up on the screen. Christians should not be owned by politics. Are you more passionate about your politics than you are about the kingdom of God? Do your politics own you? 
Here's a test. If you can't critique your own tribe, and I don't mean you can say, yeah, well, we're not great at that. I mean like a sustained reason critique against your own political camp. Your politics own you. And what does Jesus say? Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Now, for those of us who have read that before, we think, ooh, what a clever response. But we're not really sure why it is. We read that and they go, we say, they marveled at him, you know, because clearly it wasn't the answer they were expecting, but we're still not sure why that's very clever or why that is a reason to marvel. Well, I'd like to propose that the reason why they marvel is because in one fell swoop, Jesus affirms in some ways and refutes in some ways both sides. He legitimizes Caesar's power, which one side believed that Caesar's power was completely illegitimate. Why? Well, as Paul has later said, all authority comes from God ultimately. No one comes into power unless God, who sovereignly controls all things, allows people in power. But he limits Caesar's power at the same time. If he would have said, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, it would have been, well, we know where he stands. He stands with the Herodians. But there is this follow-up statement when he says, render to God the things that are God's. He is limiting the state's power, the power of whatever ruler has power and authority, whether it's Herod or Caesar or Rome or any subsequent ruler or prince or king, by putting their power in perspective. In other words, you can render this coin to Caesar because, well, his face is on it. Fine. That's what the census tax was. It was taxes paid to Caesar, and it had Caesar's, you know, emblem, his image on the coin. But essentially, Jesus was saying, but not all things belong to Caesar. Now, that's a radical claim for someone on whose coin it's written, worshipful son of the god Augustus, right? Caesar was believed to be a son of God, divine himself. That's what it meant in the ancient world to say someone was a son of God or a son of the gods. It was a claim to divinity. And so Jesus' statement is radical. It affirms in some ways both of their positions, and it critiques in some ways both of their positions. And, you know, I could be off the rails here by saying this, but I would just say that if Jesus was here with us today talking politics, he'd probably do the same thing. He would infirm, affirm in some ways both political parties, and he would critique in some ways both political parties. And I'm not arguing for just sort of like a middle-of-the-road position, you know, where you're just completely neutral. You know, that's kind of like a jellyback response to hard issues of our time. Well, you know, everybody's right and everybody's wrong. I don't want to upset anybody. I mean, that's not what, I don't think that's what Jesus is doing. 
I think one, he is recognizing that they're trying to trap him, but two, he is also demonstrating that he is above politics. He is above, ultimately, the political machinations and discussions happening at the time. And I think the lesson for us by way of application is, so should we. Christians should be above politics. Now, I'm careful when I say this because it doesn't mean you can't be engaged in politics. But it means that the things that we are arguing for are ultimately eternal things. And when you recognize the polarizing power of politics. Now, I just want to say as like a, a quick side note, I have strong political opinions, all right? So if I'm you know, in a, behind a closed door with someone I feel I can trust and they really say, Jordan, tell me where you stand on these issues. I mean, I've got strong opinions on some of these issues. So don't hear me say, like, don't hear this sort of like wishy-washy jelly back, like, oh, uh, I'm afraid. That's not it. That, the issue is, though, when it comes to the progress of the kingdom, the proclamation of the gospel, I don't want to put my first foot forward with someone who God might be dealing with to share my politics with or to get out on the table before I even talk about the gospel where I stand politically. That seems to me like something that will undermine my evangelism. And I don't want to do that. And that's what I mean when I say that in some way Christians should be above politics because if you have sort of an evangelistic, apologetic bent about you, which we all should, because that's essentially what the Great Commission is, right? To disciple the nations and teach them, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? Teaching all things that Christ has commanded us. Our first foot forward is not our political identity. And that's what I'm trying to say this morning. Your politics ought to be subordinate to your mission as an ambassador for Christ. When my political allegiances get in the way of the kingdom, they take a back seat. They ought to. When your political opinions threaten an evangelistic opportunity with an unbeliever, you need to be above politics, including your own. It is not the most important thing about you, your political opinions. Is it important? Sure. Should we engage politics? Absolutely. Some people are called vocationally to be in the world of politics. But for the rest of us who aren't, we need to understand our political opinions in the proper context. What should society see when they look at the church? What should the unbelieving secular culture around us think of when they think of the church? A partisan political entity? A group of people showing forth the praises of him who has called us out of darkness into the light. Should they see a group of partisans, religious partisans, or a safe haven from the storm? Because I'm gonna tell you right now, what's happening in our culture is 
Right now, a lot of people are exhausted politically. They're exhausted. And they're looking for a safe haven from the war that's happening right now, the intellectual and political war happening right now in our culture. And it would be a horrible shame if they couldn't find it in the church, if they couldn't find it among Christians. And I say this because, well, the church just hasn't been leading on this issue. What will society see? What should they see when they look at the church? A diverse community of people fellowshipping together in love, working through our differences, but recognizing that, that our political or ethnic or cultural diversity is not the most important thing about us, but our unity and un union with Jesus. Our unity in Christ is the most important thing about us. And that unity ought to radiate outward to those looking for safe haven. As you vote on Tuesday, know that each candidate will have consequences, but the outcome of this election has been sovereignly ordained by God. And like all things that God has sovereignly ordained, God uses means, so get out and vote. I would never say don't vote because the outcome is determined. I would say God uses secondary causes like us to fulfill his purposes and decrees. But regardless of who wins, we don't need to freak out because, well, our trust and hope isn't in any ruler. It isn't in any president, any king, any prince, any prime minister. It's not in Caesar. It's not in anyone who may hold power, but the God who rules and reigns over all things. Let's pray. Father, thank you now for your grace and these two examples from Scripture. Lord, let our hearts be chastened and reminded that Jesus does critique all political systems. He was not owned by either side, and he was above the deep political issues of his day. Help us, O oh God, to follow Christ's own example and to recognize that you have called us to proclaim a gospel that has the only power to save and is the only true means of hope. It is not a person, it is not a ruler, a king, a president. It is Christ. And help us as Christ's people to point outsiders to him as our only hope. We pray these things in his name. Amen.